All right. Romans chapter 6 this morning. We're starting in on the third major section uh, for the book of Romans as Paul shares the details of the gospel message um, this letter to the church at Rome. In chapter 1, Paul started off with the theme verses, verses 16 through 17, um, and he really started off in verse 15 of that chapter by saying, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. After his introductions, his initial introductions in the letter, uh, he told the Romans how eager he was to preach the gospel to them. Not that they weren't already saved, but he wanted to lay out the details of God's good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ that he says is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel that reveals God's righteousness. And that's what kicked us off. And he then started in this first major section from verse 18 of chapter 1 down through verse 20 of chapter 3, talking about condemnation. In that first section, we learned all about man's sinful condition. We saw in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Mankind has no righteousness of his own. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. No one measures up to the righteousness of God. And that's what Paul laid out in those next two chapters. And then he got to chapter 3, where we saw uh, somewhere in the middle of the chapter, verse 10, he said, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And he continues on down from there, showing the lost, sinful condition that mankind finds himself in as he willfully rejects God and turns himself away from God. But then he got to verse 21 of chapter 3, and we saw the only place that man truly has any hope at all, and that is in the work that God has provided in his Son. He said, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. If you remember back to the theme verses, which we just read, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And here we see that as well. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in what He has done on the cross. Verse 21 of chapter 3 started the second major portion of the letter, dealing with justification. We had condemnation, now we have justification. How can sinful man who is under the wrath and condemnation of God ever be seen as righteous before God? How could a person who is in that lost sinful state that he presented in that first section ever be reconciled to God? The answer to that is what he lays out for us then from verse 21 of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5. Justification is when God declares the ungodly, the unrighteous, the enemy of God, the sinner, declares him to be righteous. And he, but he doesn't do that automatically. He doesn't do it without a payment for sin. But that payment has been provided in the death of His Son, in Jesus Christ, who has provided that for us, who has paid that debt on our behalf. But again, this is not automatic. Because in order for that payment to be applied to anyone, that person must believe it. Justification is by faith. He made that abundantly clear in that entire section, even giving the example of Abraham, who we see back in Genesis, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is justification. 
So just like what happened with Abraham back in the Old Testament, the person who believes in what God has promised, which today we know is revealed in the finished message, the complete message of the gospel, believes in the atoning work that Christ accomplished on the cross, that person's faith is credited to them as righteousness. They are justified by faith. And that's what that section was all about from verse 21 of chapter 3 down through the end of chapter 5. So we've seen all this so far in our study. We've gone through all of this. And now today we come to chapter 6, where we get to start in on the next major section that Paul presents here. And this is sanctification. We were sinners, condemned before God, but through faith in the work of His Son, we have been justified. We have been credited with a new legal standing before God, seen now as righteous before Him. At the beginning of chapter 5, we talked about how that faith causes us to burst through the wall. Remember, we used the example of the Kool-Aid man at the beginning of chapter 5. Bursting through the wall, going from the side of sinful man, being an enmity with God, the side of Adam as we looked, towards, uh, we looked at towards the end of the chapter, and then coming through to the other side, to the side of peace and reconciliation with God, the side that Christ made possible by His atoning work on the cross. That's what has been accomplished through our justification. But now what? As those who have burst through that wall, we find ourselves on the other side of that wall, we stand before God in peace and living our lives in hope of the glory that is to come. Now what? What does that mean for us now? Sanctification is the what now aspect of the gospel message. What kind of life does a person who is saved live? Many people are content to stop their thought process of salvation right here. I've been justified. I've believed. I am saved. I'm going to live with God for all eternity. That's all I'm really concerned about. I don't really care about the rest. I've got my fire insurance. I'll see you in heaven someday. Many teachers and churches are content to stop teaching right there at that point. Your sins are forgiven. You have been made clean. You now stand in a right position before God. Do whatever you want to do. But is that really what the Bible says? Is that really what it teaches? Now, all of those things are true. All those things do take place. Sins are forgiven. You do stand right before God. Justification does result in eternal life. But it doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. The Bible doesn't stop there. There is more that takes place when a sinner puts their faith in God, believes in Him for their salvation. And it's to that point that we come here in Romans chapter 6. Now that I'm justified, I've been declared righteous, what happens now? Now comes sanctification. Sanctification is a word that means to be set apart. It's a word that means holy. Right? We see sanctified, saint, holy. All of these words are basically that same word. They come from the same word for sanctification. Just so you know, a saint in Scripture isn't a super-Christian. Right? Sometimes we look at saints, well, there's a, the saints, right? They're super-Christians. They're some special kind of Christian. That's what some people believe. But a saint is just a Christian. Every Christian is a saint. It simply means that when we are justified at that same moment in time, we are set apart for God and set apart from sin. Again, it's what happens when we burst through that wall. On the other side of the wall, we are now on the other side of sin, and we are instead now on the side with God. That's a picture of sanctification. Sanctification and justification are not the same thing, but justification always results in sanctification. Let me just mention to you, there's different dimensions or aspects of sanctification that we talk about. There's the past aspect of it, which, means, which is when we are set apart from the, the penalty of sin. And this takes place when we are justified at that same point in time. It doesn't come about later. 
There's nothing that we have to do special for it. It happens at that same moment. At that time, we are declared to be holy by God, to belong to Him, and that is known as positional sanctification. That's now our position before God. But there's a present aspect of it as well, being set apart from the power of sin. And we'll see today that the authority of sin is severed when we are justified. And there's an ongoing process of sanctification that we go through each and every day as we walk in the Christian life. But this is our maturing process in Christ. It is our daily living where we are tested and growing and becoming more and more and more like Him. And this is what we call practical or sometimes progressive sanctification, where it progresses as we mature in our lives. Then there's the future aspect of sanctification, where we will be set apart from the very presence of sin, where we, when we are de- dwelling in the presence of God. And this will ultimately take place when we are glorified and living with Him for all eternity. The culmination where the other two aspects are brought together and we will completely be sanctified in Him in every way. This is a most significant doctrine because it shows how we as believers are to live and conduct ourselves. How we are to deal with sin, how we are to look at sin in our lives. Again, it's different from justification. Justification takes care of the penalty of sin. It is taken away and God declares us to be righteous. That is something that happens at that point in time. It happens once and it's done. We are justified. It has been accomplished. Sanctification then comes in as a result of our justification, but it's distinct from justification. It might shock some people to know that we were saved to be set apart. We were saved for a purpose. Look with me over to the book of Ephesians real quick. We'll be in Ephesians a couple of times, three, three times this morning. This is the first of those. But first, the first chapter of Ephesians. I mentioned that some people like to stop it just talking about justification, not think or go any further. And they'll say, well, now that I'm saved, I can just live any way that I want to. I think I told you a story about when I was a kid when I actually told somebody that one time. Boy, that's the nice thing about grace. You get saved, then you can do whatever you want. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not what God has saved us for. He has saved us for a purpose. Look, if you look in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. You see here, he says that we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That's way back in eternity past. But we were chosen to be what? Holy and blameless. Holy is our word for saint or sanctified. To be set apart. Blameless means to be without blemish. You see, we were not saved to continue to live and look like the world. To live lives of sin. We were saved to be separated from that. To be without sin. To have it removed. To have it washed clean from our lives. We are now on the opposite side of that wall. We are not to live like we were still on the previous side. It's this concept, this very idea that Paul is getting to in the sixth chapter of Romans. Romans 6 is the foundation for living a right life before God. Now, as we look into chapter 6 of Romans, go ahead and turn back there. Paul is going to lead us into a discussion on the sanctified life with a question that anticipates the reaction of his critics. And he'll actually, the, the chapter 6 is kind of defined by two questions, one in, one in verse 1, one in verse 15. As you can imagine, we're not going to get to the one in verse 15 today. But these two questions, and just for context, look back at what Paul said in verse 20 of chapter 5 where he said, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the point here was that as the law came in, sin increased. It didn't mean that people didn't sin before the law came. 
We saw that back up in verses 13 and 14. But it means that when the law came in, there was increase in the rebellion of man, rebellion against what God had decreed, not that now that the law was written down, right? We talked about the speed limit signs, right? You see it's 40, you go 45, and then you see it increases to 50. If you don't increase five, you go up a little more than that, right? I hear people do that. I don't know who, who those people would be, but... But the increase in sin is still overshadowed by the grace of God. God's grace always has been and always will be greater and sufficient to cover sins. He provided the death of his son to take care of sins, and the number of sins will never be able to overwhelm the sufficiency of that act. It's kind of like the old playground argument, right? When you see kids playing on the playground, or maybe when you were a kid playing on the playground, and the kids try to best each other, and they'll, they'll say, well, I have a million of something. And somebody else say, well, I have a billion of something. Well, I have a trillion of something. And then it gets serious when somebody says, I have infinity, right? The kid says, I have infinity. And now it's real. And then somebody brings up the west weapon of mass destruction, and they say, well, I have infinity times infinity. <laughs> Boom, right? Now you just unleashed it on them. Well, that's God's grace abounding all the more. Infinity times infinity. Man's kind, mankind's sin can't stretch the limit on what God's grace can cover. And it's this phrase, this concept from those last two verses in chapter 5 that Paul is going to be speaking to here as we start here in chapter 6. So look how he starts off in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Once again, Paul's asking this anticipated question. Paul knew that this question would be asked. If when the more sins occur, the greater God's grace is manifested, the more it abounds, then we should keep sinning, right? Because then there's more grace. If, if bringing in God's grace is a good thing, then if we sin, it brings in more grace. There you go. There's a logical argument, right? Shouldn't we see our continuing in sin as just more opportunities for the grace of God to be shown, to be manifested? That's really the question here, the kind of twisted logic that people come up with. In fact, more than just being an anticipated question, it appears that Paul had already been accused of this exact thing, because back in chapter 3 and verse 8, he said, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Apparently, Paul had already been accused of saying this, or of this teaching that he has here of people saying, that's what you're talking about. But here he takes it head on. Now, it's unlikely that true believers would have that kind of attitude. But when we talk about the grace of God, that's sometimes what we get accused of. Well, if you believe in grace then you're just giving people license to sin. I've actually heard people make this argument before. Then you're just telling them that it's okay to sin. Sin as much as you want. Because all your sins have been forgiven, and you might as well do it anyway, right? Because they're all forgiven. Well, that's the problem that some people have with the concepts here that Paul's presenting. And if someone who professes to believe does have that kind of attitude that it's okay to sin, that it's all right to continue on with that sinful lifestyle because we do have free reign to do what we want now. If that's truly what they believe, then Paul's response here gives the clear answer to that. Look at verse 2. May it never be. God forbid, by no means, absolutely not. That's the phrase that we've seen and talked about before, meganointo. The phrase that we saw back in chapter 3, in verse 4, when Paul was talking about the faithfulness of God, he said, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. The very next verse, verse 5, at the end of the verse, he says, The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? May it never be, he says in verse 6. Absolutely not. It's an absurd question. There's no way. And the idea here is pretty clear. We should absolutely not continue in sin just because God's grace is sufficient to cover our sins. 
We have not been saved by God so that we have a free pass to sin whenever we want to sin. That's a ridiculous idea. But he doesn't leave us hanging with just a question and answer. He then begins to build his argument around this and to show us why it's not the case. And so he asks the question at the end of verse 2, how shall we who sin, uh, sorry, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now wait a minute. When did this happen? We died to sin. Paul says here that we died to sin. The language points to this being something that happened at a point in time. When was that? When did that happen? This is part of our breaking through to the other side of that wall and a part of our separation from our previous life. Again, this is what sanctification is all about. We have been set apart, separated from sin. A few weeks ago, we talked about death. Um, You may remember, we mentioned the various kinds of death that have been caused by sin, right? There's physical death. If we're all very familiar with physical death, right? We are separated from our physical bodies, right? There's a separation between us and our physical bodies. There's spiritual death, which is our separation from God. And then there's eternal death, which is still separation from God, but it's eternal separation from God. But death, at its very basic definition, is separation from something. Separation from life, separation from God. Well, here we see death in that same light, but it's used in a different way. Here it's used in, you could say, a good way. We have died to sin. And that means that we are now no longer in a relationship. We now no longer have a relationship to it. We are separated from sin. If a person is scheduled to work a shift tomorrow, but they get hit by a bus on their way in and they die, guess what? They're not going to make it to that shift, are they? Why? Well, they died. Their responsibility to work and pretty much to everything else died right along with them. They no longer have to work. They no longer have any more responsibilities like that. Well, that's the relationship that we have to sin. We have died to sin. We have no more responsibility to it. Now, how is that possible? Don't we still have sin around us? Don't we still sin ourselves? Well, yes, sin is still around us. Sin itself has not died. That's not what Paul says here. Paul doesn't say that sin died. He says that we died to sin, but sin still obviously goes on around us. Okay, but yet don't we still sin? As believers, don't we still sin? Yes, we do. We do sin ourselves. But as we'll see as we continue through this chapter, sin will no longer be the pattern of the life of the believer. Sin was what characterized us before we were justified. If you remember back in chapter 3, a lot of references back to chapter 3 this morning. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul said, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Both Jews and Greeks, he says, everyone are under sin. That was that controlling aspect of sin, under the power of sin, being enslaved to sin. Having died to sin, that's no longer what defines us. And therefore, we are not to continue in sin, not to continue to live in it as we did prior to when we believed, prior to when we were justified. Paul's pointing, point in this is that having died to sin, we cannot still live in it. Sin can no longer characterize the life of the believer. Now, that's the question asked and answered, right? Paul presented here short and sweet. But if we've seen anything in Romans so far, Paul doesn't leave anything at short and sweet. So having asked the question about whether or not we can continue in sin, Paul goes on to explain the workings that have occurred in the believer's life that make that possible. So he says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So he starts off the phrase with, Do you not know? A phrase that indicates that they should know better. He uses this phrase in his first letter to the Corinthians a lot. It's pretty much a don't be ignorant, you know this already kind of statement. 
what is it that they should know? The significance of their baptism into the body of Christ. Now, what is this baptism that Paul is talking about here? We are all aware of baptism in the sense of physical water baptism. That's what uh, first comes to mind, and that's what some people claim that Paul is referring to here. The Romans' knowledge of their own baptism in water. But the picture that Paul presents here isn't of a physical act of baptism. He's not talking about having been united into the death of Christ via physical baptism, by the act of baptism. How do we know that? Well, because again, just like we've mentioned at many points throughout our study in Romans, we've already read the previous chapters of this letter. Paul has made it clear that no act, no physical act, no work of the law or of anything else played a part in our justification of placing us into Christ. The death that we died to sin, as we'll see through here, is part and parcel with the death that Christ died on behalf on our behalf on the cross. That's the act that brought righteousness, that made our justification possible. Not being baptized in water. Remember back to chapter 4. His whole argument around Abraham was around the fact that Abraham's actions, Abraham's works, contributed nothing to his justification. He made the point that, that circumcision, which was something seen as vitally important to the Jews, was in no way a part of Abraham's justification. All because God justifies by faith and faith alone. There's only one God, and he has one way of justification, and that is only by faith. Now, we mentioned this when we, were through, when we went through chapter 4. How can you take that truth and apply it to any other work? Circumcision didn't contribute to Abraham's salvation. How do we know? He wasn't circumcised for many years after God credited him with righteousness. It was 17 or 20 years or something like that. It didn't play a part in it. The law didn't contribute to his salvation. How do we know? The law came in 500 or so years later. Abraham never even saw the law. Well, what about baptism? Is baptism required for salvation? Well, put it to the same test. When did Abraham get baptized? Abraham was never baptized. Baptism played no part in Abraham's salvation. It doesn't play a part in anyone's salvation. Paul isn't talking here about water baptism. He's talking about something else. The baptism that Paul is talking about here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism that we received at the time that salvation came upon us, identified us with the body of Christ. Now, water baptism is a picture of that. It's public identification. It's a publicly identifying what happened to us when we were saved, when we were justified, but it plays no part in our justification. There are a few other places that Paul talks about this. I want to take you to a couple of them just to show you this. But look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts in this section here, in this chapter. Gifts with which the Holy Spirit provides us as a part of His indwelling ministry that come upon us when we are saved. Now the source of that, when He indwells the believer, is at the same time that we're justified. Now in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the Spirit giving gifts to the body. He says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So here he's talking about the church. He's talking about the body of Christ. All of us who have been brought into right fellowship with God and how that has placed us into the body of Christ. Now look at what he says in verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So here again, he uses that same terminology, baptized. So he's talking about baptism, but he's not talking about water baptism. We were baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is us being identified, 
placed into the body of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Another place we see this is in Colossians chapter 2. So turn over to Colossians 2 with me. There are several passages we could go to. We'll just leave it at a couple of them here. But look at Colossians 2. If you look down at verse 8, you see there that Paul is concerned about them falling for the philosophies and influence of the world. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. He wants to make sure that they're not falling for the teachings of the world, for the teachings of men, but instead taking in the truth of God's word, the principles according to Christ. Then he goes on in verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now here he talks about circumcision, but you note it's not physical circumcision that he's talking about. It's circumcision without hands. And we saw that before when we were looking at chapter 2 of Romans. This would be circumcision of the heart. Old Testament passages, New Testament passages. We looked at several passages when we talked about it there. Both talk about how Israel needed to be circumcised of the heart, not of the flesh. It was a spiritual circumcision that was necessary. And now in verse 12, we see the same thing with baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised, you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see here, he's using baptism in the same way that he was talking about circumcision. He's not referring to the physical act. He's referring to the spiritual truth of having a circumcised heart and of being baptized into the death of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. That brings us all into the body of Christ, just like we saw in 1 Corinthians 12. He says the same thing again in the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 where he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It's the same thing. You believed in Christ. You became sons of God. were baptized into Christ. Again, that's the same thing going on there. So back in Romans chapter 6. There are some who would say that this baptism in Romans 6 is a reference to water baptism, but I think it's clear that we're talking here about spiritual baptism. So what does occur? We are baptized into his death. We have been identified with him in his death. At the time of our salvation, the Spirit is at work in identifying us with Christ's death on the cross. That is how our penalty is paid. Christ died, we believe in him for salvation, and his death is now credited to us. It makes it our death as well. As far as God is concerned, from a legal standpoint, we died when Christ died. We now have that identification with Christ. And that's the death that he spoke of in verse 2 when he said that we died to sin. Christ died to pay the penalty for sins. We have trusted in that work which he accomplished on our behalf, and through the Holy Spirit, we have now been identified with him in his death. Now look with me at verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now here in verse 4, he takes that next step, talks about burial now. God views us as having been buried with him as well. Well, what's burial? Burial is a seal or a proof of death, right? It shows the finality of death, the completeness of death. We talk about somebody being dead and buried, right? It's that that next obvious step. Having died on the cross, he was buried, and we were buried with him. Again, this is part of that baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we are totally identified with Christ. God reviews us as having not only died with him, but having been buried with him as well. Through the process of justification that he has brought us through by faith, this is all part of what has been applied to us as well. Now, to what end? 
To what purpose? Okay, we've died to sin. This is the part we were talking about before, where people like to stop right there. Okay, we died with Christ. But there's a purpose here. We died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, but now what? What's the next step? He says, so that, or in order that, right? He presents a purpose statement here. There's a purpose for us in this. Just as Christ's death and burial was not the end for him, it is not the end for us either. What happened after Jesus died? Three days later. He didn't stay dead. We all know that, right? Paul tells the Corinthians that if he had stayed dead, then we are all still in our sins. Of all men, we would be the most to be pitied. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And that's what Paul presents here. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Christ was raised by the power of God for his glory. We understand that was an essential part of his work on the cross. He died, but then he rose again. So what does that mean for us? As those who are now identified with him, we have also been raised with him. And that identification is seen in the last phrase, so we too might walk in newness of life. As we were baptized with him, it was in order that we might be raised as he was raised. And note, that's the purpose of this. He's not just presenting a fact. It is a fact. But he's telling us this to note that there is a reason why we are raised with him. And this is essential for our understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. He says, so we too might walk in newness of life. The purpose of God identifying us with Christ in his death and burial was so that we might also be identified with him in the newness of his resurrection life and walk in it. What does it mean to walk? We all know what it means to put one foot in front of another and walk. But in this context, we're talking about to live. It means to conduct yourself. That's how we now live our lives. One step after the other, continuing on as a pattern of what we do. We walk in newness of life. He justified us and baptized us into the body of Christ so that we might now live a new life. I told you we'd be in Ephesians a few times. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. We've seen this passage a lot in our study. Most of you are probably really familiar with it. But the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 really are kind of a summary of all that Paul is covering in Romans 1 through 8. We've talked about the first three verses in Ephesians 2. Dead in your trespasses and sins, children of wrath even as the rest... You note the wording that he uses in verse 2 of Ephesians 2. After he says in verse 1 that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And that's our word that we're talking about here. Walking, we, the way we lived prior to our salvation was according to the world. That's what our walk was. But what happened? Verse 4, but God, God happened. Verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6 says that raised us up with him. Now, Look down at verse 8. Very familiar with verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here we have salvation, how we're justified, by grace through faith. No works on our part, no circumcision, no baptism, no keeping the law, none of that. By grace through faith. But look at what he goes on to say then in verse 10. You can't stop at verse 9. Go on to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see here the purpose for what came before. God saving us, making us alive when we were dead was for what? For good works, he says. Not by good works, but for good works, so that we would walk in them. There's our word again. The life that we now live, the life that we have been saved into, the sanctified life, a separated life, is a life that God always intended us to live for him. To live our lives in service to him, having become alive in him. 
We touched on this at the very beginning of our, of our study in Romans. When Paul introduced himself in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Sanctified for the gospel. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ. That's the picture that we should have in our heads here. Now, seeing this, go back to Romans. Seeing this, how can you talk about someone who has been justified by God, but they're still living in the old life, living a life of sin? Paul's original question to start off the chapter, how can you think you can still continue in sin when God has raised you up with Christ to newness of life? We have been resurrected with Christ to live a new life. With a new life, there is an expectation that we will now live a new way. How can people say that it's okay to be saved and not yet have a change in their lifestyle, still carry on the way that they were before? If that were really the case, then that would mean that God's power, the the, the plan, the baptism into the Holy Spirit has somehow been, been thwarted or ineffective. It means that the Holy Spirit identified someone with Christ in his death and his burial, but for some reason the resurrection part doesn't work. Well, the Spirit identifies you with Christ and in his death and in his burial, but the resurrection part doesn't work? I don't think so. It doesn't work that way. Someone who is truly saved, there is a change in their life. There has been a turning away from the old life and there is now a new life that they will live. And that was the whole purpose, to raise us up with him so that we might walk in newness of life. This is one of the characteristics of being a believer, one who walks in newness of life. When someone asks, what's a believer? We can answer, if someone who walks in a new life has been transformed uh, and now lives for Christ. It's not the only characteristic, it's not the only answer we could give, but it is a true characteristic. Continues on with this in verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul here shows the two conditions are tied together. The phrase, we have become, is in, in the original language, is the perfect tense denoting permanence, something that occurred in the past and carries on from there. We've become united with him in death, and therefore we are united with him in his resurrection. We're seeing that these two things are inseparable here. You cannot be associated with his death, being dead to sin, being redeemed from its penalty, being forgiven of all that that applies to us, without also being associated with his resurrection, a new life of righteousness. A life identified with Christ, with his character, with his life. They are absolutely inseparable. There is no justification without sanctification. You can't be identified with Christ in his death without also being identified with him in his resurrection. Verse 6, he goes on to say, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Here Paul further explains the death that we experienced. He says the old self here. Literally, this this phrase is the old man. is literally what it says. The old man was crucified with him. Now what man is he talking about here? Well, think back to what we had just gone through in chapter 5. Paul compared two men there, right? Adam and Christ. The one man, the first man, and those associated with him are all under sin and condemnation and wrath. The other man, the second man, is through whom comes righteousness and justification and life. So what's he doing here? He's referring back to that same typology again. What we were in Adam, when we were in Adam would be the reference to that old man. This would be the man associated with Adam. This would include all that encompassed Adam, namely living a life of sin, all that characterized us as unbelievers. 
Look back in the first chapters of the book for that. This would be the man associated with him. What has happened to the old man? He has been crucified. He has died. Again, that theme continues. Go back to Ephesians 4 again. We'll go there one more time. This is the last time, well, last time today that we'll go to Ephesians. I can't say we won't go there again. But Ephesians chapter 4. Paul uses this same terminology again, talking about getting rid of the old man. The entire chapter of Ephesians 4 talks about, or deals with walking as we ought to walk. He talks, he starts off chapter 4 of Ephesians, really the last half of the letter, by saying in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You've been called to salvation. You've been given life uh, by grace through faith, we saw in chapter 2. Now, this is how you are to walk. That's sanctification. That's that progressive aspect of it. In verses 17 through 19, he talks about the characteristics of the unbeliever and states how that's not how we should be walking. But then in verse 20, there's a transition. Look at verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Here he's talking about that transition from the old self to the new self, going from the former manner of life to the new life. That's once again the old man. That's the same expression that we have in Romans 6. He's referring to the old man as something that is removed and put away, almost like a suit of clothes. But the idea is the same. It is something that is done away with and replaced by what? The new man, the man that is characterized by righteousness, holiness, truth, and the very likeness of God. You see, the crucifixion of the old man is the beginning of our transformation to a new life in Christ. Once the old man is dead, it no longer has any power over us. We have died to that life. Back in Romans 6, verse 6, the old self is crucified in order that Same expression as before, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. And the body of sin there, he's basically talking about the physical body that is controlled by sin or that was controlled by sin. The old man being crucified means that we no longer have to present our bodies to be engaged in sinful acts. That's why he says at the verse, so that we no longer be slaves to sin. Having been crucified with Christ, having our old man crucified, that frees us from slavery to sin. Remember, we saw that way back in chapter 3, verse 9. All men, both Jews and Gentiles, are all under sin. That's that slavery to sin that we're talking about. That's what we were, where we were, right along with everyone else. But in Christ, having been justified... That is no longer true of us. What do we do? When we sin, we sometimes say, you know, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. But you know what? That's not true. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, then you can help yourself. You have no excuse except that you chose to go back to the old man. Right? You are putting yourself under the authority of a corpse. Obey the command of a dead man. For the believer, there is no need for us to do that. Having died to sin, it has no power over me. I do not have to sin any longer. I have been given the ability through my new life in Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells me, to never have to sin again. Does that mean that we don't struggle with sin? No, we do struggle with sin. We'll see that as we get later on into the book as well. But that's not anything that we have to do. Now come to verse 7. And we'll end here for today. Where Paul simply says, For he who has died is freed from sin. 
And this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you are dead to something, you're free from it, right? Someone dies in this world is free from everything in it. We mentioned that earlier, right? If I die today, if I drop down dead right now, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to work tomorrow. I'm not, I'm not going to make it in there. And if I, if I owe any, you know, I loan or I borrowed five dollars from anybody, you're not going to get it back from me. Sorry. If I'm, you can check my pockets or talk to Jenny maybe, but I am not going to give that five dollars back to you. If I'm dead, then I'm free from those responsibilities. Now the word freed, or some might have set free, is a word that we've seen before in Romans. And by using this particular word, I think Paul's making it very clear what we're talking about here. It's the word justified. Having died, we are justified from sin. Remember what justified is. It's to be made right or righteous. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Our lives have been justified from sin. As a courtroom term, right? That's what the word justified is. We have been set free from the hold that sin had on us before. We've been made right with regard to sin. It's basically a not guilty verdict in God's courtroom when it comes to sin. That's really what sanctification is. As we've talked about, uh, that's really what justification is, sorry. But it carries into sanctification. As we talked about earlier with the different aspects of sanctification, the penalty of sin was taken away. That was removed from us. We are no longer guilty of that. Now we're seeing that the power of sin has been taken away. That it's not that sin is no longer around, but in our lives we are no longer enslaved to it. We no longer have to succumb to it. We might still, again, struggle with it from time to time. That's that ongoing process of sanctification that goes on over time. It lessens for us, and that makes us more and more Christ-like. But we still might fail in it from time to time. But then eventually, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 5, with the hope that we have in the glory of God, we know that one day we will be set free from even the very presence of sin, glorified with Him, along with all those who belong to Him. This is a transformation from one life to another. And now that we are in a new life, we live according to that life. Before we lived in sin, unable to live righteously. Now we live in righteousness, unable to live a life of sin, to continue in that old life. Everything that we were before has been nailed to that cross. All our sins, everything associated with that old life was nailed to the cross. We are now free from it. That's what makes the sanctified life possible, freeing us from sin, removing the power and the influence of the old sinful life. People don't want to admit when they're slaves of sin, but that's what the Bible says, right? You are either alive to sin and dead to God, or you are alive to God and dead to sin. You can't choose neither, and you can't choose to be both. A person who has professed faith in Christ and yet continually lives a life of sin, who still lives sin with a coat of the old man, then maybe that person never put on the new man, never truly repented of their sin and trusted in the work of Christ on the cross. Have you ever been crucified with Christ? If you have, then you will be living a sanctified life. And as we continue on with chapter 6 next time in the coming weeks, we'll see more of how this new life in Christ is lived out. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly